The birth of a child is one of the most joyous events that many of us will experience, but unfortunately it can still be a dangerous event for some women, even in modern times. Today we will be discussing maternal mortality, which the World Health Organization defines as deaths occurring during pregnancy or within 42 days of termination of a pregnancy, which are linked to pregnancy or its management. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention puts it well when they state that, quote, the death of a woman during pregnancy at delivery or soon after delivery is a tragedy for her family and for society as a whole. The CDC says that sadly about 700 women die each year in the United States as a result of pregnancy or delivery complications. And the most recent CDC numbers from 2018 place the U.S. maternal mortality rate at 17.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. This places the U.S. 55th in a ranking of all countries by the WHO, and a stunning 10th out of 10 for similarly wealthy countries. On top of this, the U.S. appears to be experiencing an increase in maternal mortality rate over time, while other countries are declining. We also see large racial disparities in maternal mortality in the U.S., with the rate in black women around twice that of white women. All of this has prompted questions and concerns about the quality of U.S. maternal health care. In fact, many health experts believe that maternal mortality is an important indicator of a country's overall population health, prompting even larger concerns about the state of the U.S. population's health. So what does this all mean for women in the U.S. and worldwide, and for the health of the U.S. compared to other countries? And how reliable are these numbers anyway? How can we keep women safe while they're giving birth? Today we'll be discussing whether there truly is a maternal mortality crisis in America and what the data actually says. We'll also discuss how to make giving birth safer and provide some advice for women who are planning to give birth. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today I am joined by Nicole Austin, postdoctoral fellow in epidemiology at McGill University. Hi Nicole, how are you doing? Hi Brian, I'm great, how are you? Great, and Nicole, could you please introduce our expert on this topic, K.S. Joseph? Gladly. Um, We're very happy to have Dr. K.S. Joseph today. Uh, K.S. is a professor in the departments of obstetrics and gynecology and the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia, and the Children's and Women's Hospital and Health Center of British Columbia. KS, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, both of you. So let's go into some questions here. So before we get into discussing the United States context specifically, I wanted to ask some general questions about maternal mortality. Uh, Kaz, why would you say that maternal mortality is an important indicator of population health? What does it tell us about a population as a whole? As a society, we acknowledge that the death of a pregnant woman or a death of a woman in childbirth or soon after, that's a serious tragedy. The family is destroyed and you're left with this terribly unfortunate situation of a motherless child. Of course, this doesn't mean that Deaths to non-pregnant young women are not tragedies. They are tragedies as well. But in the context of pregnancy and childbirth, there are these specific risks that women face. And we generally recognize that these risks can be reduced and maternal deaths can be by and large prevented with good medical care. 
So for historical and social reasons, maternal mortality has been considered one of the key indicators of population health. In a broad sense, met the maternal mortality rate of a population reflects its health status, the state of its health services, and also the status of women in the population generally. So I think that it's nice at this point to just consider the global picture with regard to maternal deaths to situate ourselves. The World Health Organization, UNICEF and other stakeholders, they estimate that for every 100,000 babies born alive in 2017, 211 mothers died. This means a total of 295,000 maternal deaths in 2017, 99% of which occurred in lower income countries. So that's that's the context in which we are talking about maternal deaths. Right. Now you mentioned um, prevention a minute ago, so I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a sense of the leading causes of maternal death, um, but also, as you just pointed out, I'm sure the situation differs across the developed and developing world. So could you give us a sense of how and if those causes vary uh, by context? Yes. So the causes of maternal death are broadly classified into the direct obstetric causes and the indirect obstetric causes. Direct causes refer to obstetric complications due to pregnancy or childbirth or due to treatments that are carried out to address those pregnancy complications and which end up causing death. The examples of the direct causes include severe hemorrhage, meaning severe bleeding during childbirth, or you could have another cause is sepsis, which is a serious infection contracted during childbirth. Preeclampsia is also an important cause of maternal death, and this refers to a pregnancy complication in which the woman's blood pressure rises and leads to life-threatening complications, including seizures, and that's referred to as eclampsia. The other category of maternal deaths, the causes are the indirect causes, and these refer to pre-existing diseases a woman may have and which get aggravated by pregnancy and lead to maternal death. The examples of indirect causes would include cardiac diseases, for instance, ischemic heart disease, you can also have neurological diseases like epilepsy, or you can have psychiatric disorders, which can lead to death. Now, as you mentioned, the causes of maternal death vary. Starting globally the, across the world, the leading causes of maternal death are hemorrhage, the hypertensive disorders like preeclampsia and eclampsia, sepsis, meaning infection, obstructed labor, when there is a disproportion in the size between the baby and the mother's pelvis, that can lead to uh, death in situations where there is no, not adequate medical care services. We also have deaths in various parts of the world following unsafe abortion and also in the last three or four decades from HIV and AIDS. Now in high income countries, the causes of death are slightly different. So for instance, if you take the United Kingdom, in 2015 to 2017, the commonest cause of maternal death there was cardiac diseases. This is an indirect cause of death. And the second most common cause of death in the UK was thrombosis and thromboembolism, a direct cause of death. And there were other causes of death as well, 
other direct uh, direct causes included hemorrhage and sepsis other indirect causes included neurological causes and so on that would be in summary some of the leading causes of death both in the world and in high income countries so how so and and how does that differ from so you were mentioning the uk those were deaths in the uk the leading causes of deaths and then how does that differ from the leading causes in say lower income countries so the in the lower income countries we it's not that we don't have uh, say cardiac diseases or thrombosis and thromboembolism but it's just that the hemorrhage that can occur in either a low income or a high income setting is not adequately addressed is not immediately treated so hemorrhage becomes a very important cause of death in low income countries similarly preeclampsia is a very important cause in low income countries sepsis so it's it's the same causes yes. in both contexts it's just yes. one is more likely more direct ones um are less likely to be treated and um and more likely to kill you in the lower income context. Exactly, right? exactly. So a 100 years ago in high income countries we were experiencing those same problems but now the medical care is able to address those pregnancy complications much better. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about which causes of death are currently responsible for driving trends over time. Well, first of all, actually maybe you can tell us if there are trends over time. So I said in the intro that most countries seem to have be see experiencing declines in maternal mortality whereas maybe the US is uh you know experiencing increases and you can get into whether or not that's true but what do you what do you think's driving overall time trends so there's been a long standing secular trend with maternal mortality rates falling tremendously over the last 100 years or more and this has got to do with our understanding about infection issues in world war 2 after the technology of blood transfusion became more common that led to a pro- adequate treatments for hemorrhage more deliveries in hospital antibiotics so this whole host of of medical advances led to declines in maternal mortality and now if you look at high income countries we are seeing that as these deaths due to direct causes like preeclampsia and hemorrhage and sepsis are declining we have new causes of death which are emerging as the more commoner causes like cardiac disease for instance so uh, over the last 3 2 or 4 2 to 4 decades hiv appeared and is now responsible for deaths in some low income countries newer trends in high income countries include substance abuse mm-hmm. mental health disorders these are concerning and again in high income countries obesity and related heart disease right. these are all new problems that we are that are emerging in high income countries i see i was going to ask if the opioid epidemic is driving maternal mortality indeed there there are substance abuse including opioid deaths are contributing in especially in very recent years we are seeing deaths due to opioid the opioid epidemic now all of this um ties in a little bit to how we're defining maternal mortality which I think would be helpful to walk through um at this point. So I know that some definitions of maternal mortality include uh just deaths up to 42 days uh postpartum but there's also a definition that goes beyond that so up to a year. Um so I'm, uh, I think a lot of the causes that you're talking about the cardiac issues, HIV AIDS, 
uh, these would probably fall into the numerator of the, the second definition, where you're expanding and looking out to a year postpartum. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the difference between these definitions and also talk about what is a more relevant indicator of maternal health. Yes, so the traditional definition of maternal mortality was restricted, restricted to death in pregnancy or death within 42 days after the end of pregnancy. Now, the, the rationale for that was because most pregnancy complications tend to resolve within six weeks after the end of pregnancy. But what happened about 20 years ago was WHO introduced this concept of late maternal death. And that they did that because in recent decades, we have had medical improvements that mean that women can suffer serious illness in pregnancy or soon after childbirth. And then with intensive care, we can continue to manage them and they stay alive for six weeks and maybe they die three, four months down the road. And we don't want to lose that count because it actually happened in pregnancy. And in fact, studies show that when we look at these late maternal deaths, which occur after 42 days, or 42 days, a significant fraction of them are due to direct and indirect causes of maternal death, meaning they are due to pregnancy complications that carried over beyond six weeks. So that could be, for instance, deaths from cardiac causes, deaths from stroke or thrombosis and thromboembolism and so on. Okay. So it sounds like particularly in, in more developed contexts, it's really advantageous to use these late or to include these late maternal deaths in your count. Indeed. And the other thing, the other trend that has happened is that the focus is today in especially in high income countries but also elsewhere is that we don't focus just on maternal mortality which is the most unfortunate outcome but we are also concerned about severe morbidity because that can lead to sequelae and can really hurt women and their families so that's another so late maternal deaths is one issue we are looking at but we also look at severe morbidity that affects women during pregnancy or soon after Okay, um, and I know that uh, reducing maternal mortality is a priority area for the WHO, um, so I'm wondering, can you give us a sense of how uh, countries, how different contexts aim to do this? Like what, what strategies are deployed on the ground to reduce these mortality rates? Right, so as I said, the most recent estimate of maternal mortality worldwide is 211 per 100,000 live births for 2017. That's the WHO estimate. And the sustainable development goals which were accepted by the United Nations, they aim to bring this maternal mortality rate down to 70 per 100,000 live births by 2030. So we have this task of reducing the rate by more than a half in the next 13 years. And there is a general framework that's outlined for how this is to be done. And the framework includes, you know, uh, things like empowering women, supporting legal and regulatory mechanisms to empower women and improve their health. It also mentions providing high quality sexual, reproductive and maternal care in across the world in different countries. 
improving surveillance and measurement of maternal death, which doesn't exist across the world. And then finally, prioritizing resources for the care of women. Those are, that's the general framework. The WHO also has some strategic objectives, which they uh, include, you know, addressing inequalities in access to care, inequalities in the quality of care, ensuring that there's universal health coverage for these sexual, reproductive and maternal care services, addressing specific causes of maternal mortality and severe morbidity, and then strengthening the healthcare system specifically to respond to the needs of women and girls, and finally, to ensure accountability with regard to care and with regard to equity. Can you tell us a little bit more about why empowering women is so important to this strategy? I mean, I think someone naively could be listening to this and say, you know, well, you just told us it's all about how we respond to a negative event during pregnancy. So that sounds like it's all on the doctors, you know. So how, how does empowering women have anything to do with this? So across the world, there have been numerous studies that have shown that parts of the world where women's literacy rates are higher, you have lower rates of maternal mortality and better child development and lower rates of child mortality as well. So th there is there are studies across the world which show, for instance, even also microfinance programs that am directed towards women will improve not just their socioeconomic status, but also their health indices like maternal and child mortality. So that's a, that, that's a, that's a key issue that if you Im improve women's literacy, women's education, and empower women, that will translate into improved health for the entire family. Mm. Very important. Interesting. Okay, so we've kind of skirted around the topic, but let's address um, let's address the situation in the U.S. specifically. So, you know, as we discussed in the intro, the U.S. seems to fare very poorly compared to other countries, at least according to media coverage. I mean, you see all the time in the media that we have this um, this crisis of, of maternal mortality, and I think that. Uh, you know, I think that people find it very shocking. Like, how could a country as wealthy and powerful as ours have, have you know, people who are dying while they're giving birth? So, you know, do you believe that there's actually a crisis going on? You know, are, are the reports that the rate is going up over time accurate? Does your work support these claims? Yeah, th this is a very interesting uh, issue. In 2017, my co-authors and I, we published a study which looked at maternal mortality rates across the U.S. We did some statistical analysis by state, and we also did analyses by cause of death. And our conclusions were that the documented increase in maternal death rates in the United States is merely a reflection of improvements in surveillance. We are counting maternal deaths better, and that's the reason for the increase over the last 20 years. Now, these changes in surveillance, they primarily occurred because of the introduction of a pregnancy checkbox on the death certificate in 2003. So when the National Center for Health, uh, NCHS Health Services, when they assessed the situation and found that maternal deaths were being undercounted, they introduced this pregnancy checkbox in 2003. And that checkbox requires the person filling out the death certificate 
to state if the woman was pregnant at the time of death. If she was pregnant in the 42 days preceding the death or within the one year preceding the death. So this checkbox, the, 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 the different, it was, although it was recommended in 2003, the different states adopted it at different points in time between 2003 and 2017. So as the checkbox led to more deaths being identified, it appeared as if there's a temporal rise in maternal mortality in the US, which was steady and gradual. And that's what our findings suggested. But more importantly, in 2020 January, that is a few months ago, the NCHS of the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, they published three detailed reports on the effect of this pregnancy checkbox. And these reports, they were presented in great detail and they were very carefully done studies. And it went, it included a re-examination of the death certificate to see how the checkbox was being used. And what these studies showed was that if you don't use the pregnancy checkbox, there's no change in the maternal mortality rate between 2003 and more recent years. So for instance, in 2002, the maternal mortality rate in the US before the pregnancy checkbox was 8.9. In 2015, 16 and 18, if you read the calculations without using the checkbox, the rate was 8.7 per 100,000 live births. So essentially there was no change. There were other important findings that these three reports presented. First, there were many cases where the pregnancy checkbox was apparently ticked in error. For instance, there were 147 women aged 85 years and over who were, for whom the pregnancy checkbox had been ticked. Now, that is not possible. Similarly, between 64, 65 and 84 years old, in, in the years 2015 and 2016, there were 184 cases of maternal deaths where the pregnancy checkbox had been ticked. So this kind of problem was corrected by the NCHS in these reports. And it's after that correction that you end up with a rate of 17.4 per 100,000 in 2018. So it's a new normal. It's much higher than it was without the pregnancy checkbox. So the pregnancy checkbox is working. But unfortunately, over this period of time, because the rates were rising because of improved ascertainment, there was this misinterpretation that the U.S. situation with regard to maternal health is deteriorating. I see. That's very interesting. So this was a case of surveillance bias, basically. Indeed. And measurement error. Um, but, the, you know, it raises the question, though, that which is the more valid count is, you know, assuming that we correct for the mistakes of the checkbox being checked for people who clearly weren't pregnant. But if the if the checkbox is used correctly, is this new higher rate of maternal mortality a more accurate picture for the United States or was the pre-pregnancy checkbox rate more accurate? Um, I think that, that before the pregnancy checkbox was introduced, a number of studies showed that the original method without the checkbox was underestimating the maternal mortality. That's why the pregnancy checkbox was introduced. But in fact, the pregnancy checkbox not just pick, it picked up cases of maternal death that were being missed, but it also introduced a large error term. Now that is what 
the NCHS has been removing, it's been scrutinizing the data and developing better methods to remove those false positive cases which are not in fact pregnant women. And over time, I think NCHS will move towards a much more accurate picture and we will understand all the different types of maternal death, especially the, some of the more subtle ones which we were missing in the past. So if, if I'm understanding correctly, we're currently in a situation where we have a good grasp of the the actual maternal, mater, more, excuse me, we have a good grasp of the actual maternal mortality rate. Um, but Those are hard words to say together, right? <laughs> maternal mortality. Tongue, like, yeah. tongue twister. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what we don't really understand is, you know, if there, it doesn't look like there was this important temporal trend, right? So we we probably, this this increase that we've observed is like the artificial um, so it, it, this really makes me wonder, as somebody who works with data a lot, uh, why it's so hard to capture these maternal deaths on death certificates. Yeah. Um, and I think, KS, I think some of your work gave an example of this, um, just these coding errors on death certificates. Uh, so how how is it possible that on a death certificate, a death would or wouldn't be coded as, as a maternal death when in fact it should be the other way around? Well... In fact, it's very hard to accurate, accurately estimate maternal mortality rates. So, for instance, in the United Kingdom, which gen is generally acknowledged to be the place where they do the best job of maternal death surveillance, they use multiple sources of data. They use death certificate data, they use coroner's reports, they use hospitalization records. They even use maternal deaths reported and picked up by the media and reported in newspapers or, or whatever. So they have a very comprehensive system. And the reports that come out of the UK, they call that the Confidential Inquiry into Maternal Death, and it's published annually. It shows that when they estimate maternal mortality rates using death certificates alone, they miss half the cases. Wow. So... The death certificate only identifies half the cases. And what's worse also is that the death certificate identifies about 30% of cases which are not true maternal deaths. So it errs both ways. Wow. So, so why, why doesn't the U.S. change their strategy, their identification strategy? Yeah, so it's, it, it's you know, the thing is that it's, it's a traditional method that has been used for the last... Uh, 30 years or so in the US and in most countries it's easiest to use vital statistics records and we are increasingly recognizing that that's not good enough. So for instance in Canada as well we had we've been using uh, death certificates data for mo monitoring maternal deaths until recently and then we, we abandoned that and we moved to hospitalization data but then with hospitalization data, we miss deaths which occur at home. So now we are right. going back to using both together. And even that's not good enough. So we are trying to organize regional maternal mortality review committees, which is the similar things are happening in the US as well. So there are many reasons for missing a maternal death. So for instance, if a woman has a spontaneous pregnancy loss at 12 weeks gestation and she dies five weeks later, the person who is certifying the death may not know that she'd been pregnant or may not consider it significant. The other big thing is that, you know, the person who's filling out the death certificate in the hospital could be a junior physician. It could be 2 a.m. when the woman died. This is paperwork that the physician may not consider particularly important. 
and so may not fill it out as accurately as they should. So there are many reasons why death certificate information is not ideal for assessing maternal deaths. This is really interesting. My primary uh, research area is in Alzheimer's disease, and we have the same exact issue. We have, you know, I've written papers showing that, um, you know, using just death certificates to ascertain how many people die from Alzheimer's, you severely undercount it. And for all the reasons, same reasons you're talking about, you know, everyone likes to think that one thing clearly causes someone to die, but it is really hard to ascertain what that thing is, or even if that's true. I think that in most cases, multiple things lead to people's death. Mm-hmm. And you're right, the people filling out the death certificate really need to have the information to accurately write that down. Um, so really interesting discussion. And it sounds like to to answer one of Nicole's questions, the, the way to do this better would require more resources, right? It, you almost need like a disease detective to really track down, you know, whether a death was caused by pregnancy. Um, and, you know, it's a question of whether we as a country want to invest those resources. Do, do you think that that's the case? Indeed. So the confidential inquiry in the UK, which, as I mentioned, is the gold standard, they have a multidisciplinary committee consisting of a range of practitioners. So you need midwives, GPs, you need obstetricians, anesthesiologists, you know, a whole lot of people who can bring different expertise to the table to understand what went wrong in a particular case. And most importantly, to identify, was it preventable? What could we have done to have avoided this particular death? So that's the that's how the confidential inquiry works. And increasingly, other countries are accepting that that's what they need to do. Wow. So, well, so definitely this is a question of investing these resources to get the accurate count. Um, But I I had a follow-up question, though, and I kind of started in on this line of questioning before. But, um, you know, if these upward trends in the United States are, in fact, a mirage of this, um, you know, change in the way that we're assessing things, and, you know, we probably could do a better job at assessing maternal mortality, but we're doing a better job now than we were before. Um, Would you say that, the most accurate picture of maternal mortality in the U.S. paints a positive or a negative picture for the U.S. You know, we talked about how maternal mortality is an indicator of a population's health. And we also talked about how the U.S., you know, is 10th out of 10 for, you know, similarly income countries. Um, is this a problem for the U.S. or are we doing okay? Well, again, I think you've partly answered the question in your initial statements that it, it depends. It, it all depends on... What you mean by is the U.S. doing a good job? So if you if your frame of reference is the past, then yes, compared to 20 years ago, compared to 30 years ago. Uh, Let's say compared to other countries. Oh, now. that's that that is a that's a, a, a very difficult question to answer because we don't have comparable data from different countries. So that's a, that's a, a very complex issue. So you could say that compared to the past, we are doing well. You can say that, can we do better? And the answer is yes to that as well. So we can do, the U.S. can do much better. And the comparisons with other countries, I think the, I mean, surely there are differences between countries, but perhaps the biggest difference between countries is the way maternal mortality is measured, how it's counted. 
So I think to some extent it's a fruitless exercise comparing between countries, especially those in the same ballpark. But we love to do that as epidemiologists. <laughs> yes, yes. But we need to standardize our methods then. If, if that's what we want to do, we need to standardize our methods. <laughs> well, let's oh, say... Oh, go ahead, Nicole. Uh, well, I, I was going to move on to a, to a little bit of a discussion of other countries, the trends that we're seeing in other countries. Yeah. So if your U.S. work has essentially called into question the validity of these, these trends over time and maternal mortality... Uh, is the same true in other countries? Like, is, is data relatively reliable in other contexts? Is this really just a U.S. problem? Uh, because the the trends, are, the downward trends elsewhere, are pretty pronounced. Yeah, that 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 is what that's worth discussing. Uh, it's an important issue you've raised. So, you know, there are so many countries in the world that lack even a vital statistics process. So they don't ha have systems for civil registration. So those countries are in a completely different league. So now if you, even if you take countries with decent civil, civil registration processes like the United States, we've already acknowledged that that's not a good way to count maternal deaths. So we are comparing countries with varying ways of counting maternal deaths. And that's why we have a problem. And I, I, would, I would say that many of those countries are not counting all their maternal deaths. So these comparisons showing that another country is doing very well is, uh, is, is suspect always. So let me just, I mean, it, it depends to some extent on how you understand what's going on in the rest of the world. I, when I used to teach uh, issues related to maternal mortality some 10, 12 years ago, I used to ask, I, I used to discuss how there are several countries in the world, many of them in Africa, where the maternal mortality rate is more than a thousand per hundred thousand live births. So very high rates of maternal mortality in, in many, many African countries or in some African countries. And then I would throw in this question to my students and ask them, so which country do you think has the most number of maternal deaths? And the trick, the trap was, of course, to think that it's an African country, but it's not. The answer is, the answer was India, because India has the largest number of, of you know, mothers. And in 2008, India had about 63,000 maternal deaths per year. And if you compare it with a country like Nigeria, which is also a populous country and has a very high rate, in 2008, there were 50,000 deaths. But the whole situation has, uh, has sorry, in, in, yeah, in the whole situation has flipped now. In India, currently, there are 35,000 maternal deaths per year, whereas in Nigeria, it's gone up to 67,000. Now, these are very, very loose estimates because in both Nigeria and in India, the systems of counting maternal deaths would be extremely poor relative to the United States, where we have acknowledged there is a serious problem counting maternal deaths. Mm, yeah, and I'm assuming that the, uh, you know, that that rain, that that time from the uh, giving birth is probably different across countries too, right? You know, we're talking about expanding it in the U.S. to including up to a year after birth, but I'm I'm sure that's probably not the case in other countries. So if you expand that denominator, it's going to be different across countries. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, you know, if you look at the World Health Organization reports, countries like, you know, uh, many of the Russian, uh, the previous Soviet Union republics like Kazakhstan or Turkmenistan, or if you take countries like Iran or Chile, what do you think their maternal mortality is like? Now, the thing is, most of us have no experience with any of these countries. But if the report says that their maternal mortality rates are lower, and that's what the report says, that their maternal mortality rates are half the maternal mortality rate in the United States, I personally am extremely skeptical about those numbers. Yeah. Right. There's probably zero in North Korea, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, Actually, no, that's not true. North Korea has a fairly substantial number, but I'm not sure why that is so. I'm just saying what the official report might yeah. be. Um, sorry to any North Koreans listening. Um, but, you know, okay, so, so definitely there are some issues here when you're comparing across countries in terms of how we count maternal mortality. Uh, but let's, talk, let's turn to a comparison within country that I think deserves our attention and probably one that this issue isn't as big of a problem for, um, and that is racial disparities in maternal mortality. So I, I would assume that you believe it's true. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is it true that um, black women in the United States experience twice the rate of mortality giving birth as white women? Yes, I think that in fact, it's, if I'm not mistaken, the recent reports from the NCHS show a threefold higher rate of maternal death among black African-American women compared to white women. And I think that that, that is very uh, likely to be true. That's what I think. And there are a, a whole lot of reasons. And uh, there, there is one point I want to, uh, to address regarding... When you think about the causes of maternal mortality, we discussed some of the medical causes, mm -hmm. but there are these other causes which are which fall into the social determinants of health, yes. and they are terribly important as well. And there, there are a different way of looking at why these deaths occur. So, if you find that poor people in the lowest uh, quintile of the of the socioeconomic status, if they have a maternal mortality that's three, four times higher than people in the higher socioeconomic quintiles. And that is constantly and always the case. You have to look at things like poverty, housing, food access, violence, you know, racism, and even, you know, access to contraception issues, access to abortion. There are a whole lot of behavioral issues as well. So what's their educational status? Is there a substance abuse issue? Are there mental health problems? Obesity, smoking. So it's a very, very different way of looking at things. But if you want to reduce maternal mortality, you have to address social determinants of health in addition to the medical and obstetric problems that we discussed earlier with regard to specific causes of death. Very important point, and I'm glad, thank you for bringing that up. I think that, um, you know, th this is the case. These health disparities are found across pretty much every disease outcome we look at, right? And, you know, all of those contact contextual factors you just mentioned obviously are important, um, but I'm willing to bet that having not even looked at the data, that even if you adjusted for education, income, poverty, et cetera, you, you would still see these racial differences, right? 
and um and maternal mortality and i think you mentioned racism and and access and opportunity and and uh all of these things matter so much and I, you know again we talked about maternal mortality being an indicator of of you know a gauge of of an overall population's health and health and well-being and uh, seeing this disparity by race is, to me, an accurate indicator of, of how things are in the U.S. right now. Well, yes, that is true. But I would also say that we should acknowledge that the U.S. is not alone in facing this challenge. It's Very much so. So the racial disparities, they are, um, they are something that society has to confront and address urgently. But we have to understand that even, for instance, in the UK, in the United Kingdom, there is a five-fold difference between maternal deaths among blacks versus whites. Wow, it's five-fold. Five-fold. So in Canada as well, we have racial disparities. And our most uh, immediate concern has to do with our indigenous populations who have substantially higher rates of maternal mortality infant mortality and other, pro- other other problems. And the interesting thing in this context is that in Canada and the UK, we have universal health insurance and coverage. So access to care is theoretically not a problem. So again, it goes back to showing how important the social determinants of health are. So you can't just address it with medical care, although medical care is terribly important. Yeah, really interesting point. Do we know anything about um, ethnic differences, like Latinos versus whites? Uh, yes. So the the reports, uh, the report that uh, the NCHS put out has quantified that. I think that it, the disparity is not as great as between blacks and whites, but there is a disparity between Hispanic and and whites. Interesting. So. Um, you know, maybe we should turn now towards, uh, you know, what can we do? What, can, what advice can we provide to women who are going to be giving birth? You know, how can we reduce this tragic event or the chance of this tragic event, I should say, risk for this tragic event? Yeah. So I would say that the vast majority of women have little or nothing to fear because the risks we are talking about are like 10 or 20 per 100,000 live births. That's a chance of 1 in 10,000 or a chance of 1 in 5,000 of a death. This, curiously enough, is actually lower than the risk of a non-pregnant woman dying, a non-pregnant woman of the same age dying. And that's because of difference in health status. Pregnant women tend to be healthier than women who never get pregnant. Yeah. But, you know, the, but still these numbers, they they are so small that... We know that the lifetime risk of a motor vehicle accident in the U.S., for instance, is much higher. The risk that a woman would die of drowning or in a fire, they are all higher risks. So risk of maternal mortality, are those risks are smaller. But then we can't ignore these risks just like we have smoke alarms and we drive carefully. We need to be on guard against these risks. So we must, first of all, understand that modern obstetrics, modern medicine, that's what made, that, that's what has made pregnancy and childbirth safe for mothers and babies. We have to be, we have to use these medical services as best we can, not just to prevent death, but to ensure that the processes and events of pregnancy and childbirth are optimized 
so to the satisfaction of each woman and their family. Now that that opens a bit of a Pandora's box uh, with respect to this question of home birth versus hospital birth. Uh, so I can speak from from my own personal experience. A lot of friends of mine are midwives and doulas, and so they have a lot of experience with home births and really advocate um, pretty aggressively for that type of birth. Um, so is there a difference, an important difference in mortality rates between these two strategies for delivery? Um, would you advise women to kind of choose one or the one or the other or only if they're high risk, maybe? Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's an increasing tendency for women to deliver with midwives, although the trend towards home birth is not as strong, although there is such a trend. Indeed, there is such a trend, but it's uh, the, the trend towards delivering with a midwife is much more substantial, at least in Canada. Now, the, 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 the reasons underlying this, these changes, even the change to, towards home birth, it's partly a, a reaction to the over-medicalization of childbirth, pregnancy and childbirth. And, you know, hospitals are increasingly responding to these concerns. And I think many hospitals now provide an experience that most women find satisfactory. I think the key issue is this, that uh, home births should be attempted only by low-risk women. And they should be cared for by qualified midwives, where and, and in settings where it's possible to quickly transfer them to hospital if a problem arises. Now, in that situation, and then there are some other concerns as well, not regarding the mother so much, but regarding the baby. So my own views on this are informed by a large study, a large, very well done epidemiologic study that was done in England. It's called the Birthplace in England Study. And this study showed that it was safe for low-risk, multiplicitous women, women who are having their second or third child, to deliver at home. And the advantage there was that these women had fewer interventions. So they were delivered by at home. Everything was went well. Mother and baby were safe. And the, mother, the women had fewer interventions. On the other hand, the same study showed that low-risk, nulliparous women, meaning women who are having their first baby, when they delivered at home, they had slightly higher rates of adverse perinatal outcomes for the baby, not for the mother. So that, that, that was a little concerning. And also, 45% of these nulliparous women had to be transferred to hospital, either before or after delivery. Now that... 45%. So now that is not a most pleasant experience to happen in the middle of your labor or soon after you had a, a baby. So for those reasons, I, I, I mean, that, 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 that's what informs my view of home birth versus hospital birth. But at the heart of this decision, whether you, de whether you want to deliver at home or at hospital, there's a value judgment that has to be made. It's not science. It is what a person feels, depending on their values. You have to weigh the risks and benefits of safety versus the natural childbirth experience. And some women will prioritize one. Some women will prioritize the other. And in the majority of instances, we can say that both these objectives, the experience and the safety, will be achieved I, both at home and at hospital, in most instances. But it's that small probability that if something goes wrong, 
is it not better to be in the hospital but still again it's an individual decision and individual women will choose the location based on their values and their risk perception i personally feel that as long as the women are well informed we should support them in whatever choice they make so you you we're talking about um high risk versus low risk women you know we've we've kind of said that a bunch in this podcast but you know can you maybe tell a woman who's who's looking to give birth how would they know whether they're high risk or not what should they look out for who do they talk to to assess their risk category yes so women who have pre-existing illnesses they they would be probably high risk but they need to first go for prenatal preconception and counseling to understand what the their situation their specific situation is like but otherwise if you don't have pre-existing illnesses so you you, you must plan your pregnancy you have preconceptional folic acid supplementation early prenatal care is important and during your prenatal care if you have a high risk for complications you will be identified and treated appropriately you will go to the appropriate specialist or you will be given what is required and the tests that are required so for instance women with hypertension or diabetes the commonest pre-existing complications they these are these women are at high risk for various adverse outcomes so similarly one of the new trends that's happening is that we are having more and more of our conceptions our pregnancies that occur following infertility treatments so women who could not get pregnant before they have assisted reproductive technologies used and they get pregnant and they are also typically at high risk so these factors get picked up during prenatal care and addressed and today we have maternal and fetal surveillance which is excellent and improving continually so for instance most recently there has been a development where you know we prescribe aspirin for women who are at high risk of developing preeclampsia and this prevents preeclampsia from occurring in some fraction of cases so continually antenatal care obst- you know prevention of or treatment for these high risk women is improving so women should be picked up either at the pre preconception counseling stage or at during early prenatal care so you've talked to the, uh, your your uh, statement is really centered on prenatal care but what about postpartum risk management so there there are some high profile anecdotes out there um like the experience of Serena Williams the tennis player of um her postpartum complications not being taken seriously in a hospital and i mean she's not the only one right like i've heard a lot of similar stories of women who had pain who had complications who flagged them to their providers and were were sort of shrugged off um when in fact they they urgently needed to be treated uh, yes. things like embolisms and stuff like that so um you know how how can we be better at managing these complications for women is it about patient advocacy is it about better training for providers um you know what happens in these cases why why does this occur yeah yeah that's that's an important issue and i i, I would tend to think of uh, this this question this issue as you know we could divide it into this very serious pregnancy complications and the less serious but equal, there are important complications mine like for instance pain 
and discomfort and or even for instance an issue like difficulty with breastfeeding anxiety depression there are so many non life threatening issues that need to be addressed as well but let's start with the more serious ones uh, in serena williams case she had a history of pulmonary embolism and she had experienced pulmonary embolism she was already on a blood thinner which was given to her to avoid pulmonary embolism now the thing is you can't continue the blood thinner during this emergency cesarean section which she required because her baby was having problems so the blood thinner was discontinued and the day after she experienced an a pulmonary embolism and because she had already experienced it she knew and initially her symptoms were discounted but then when the ct scan showed that she had a pulmonary embolism they put her back on the blood thinner but it was a complicated case because the blood thinner led to her bleeding intraabdominally and that had to be addressed so that is a she was a very complicated case but fortunately everything ended happily and she's she's fine her baby was fine so that's a, a very serious issue and no doubt better training for providers is important and you know that's that, that's where i really appreciate the what what is being done by the confidential inquiry format into maternal deaths in the uk every year they pick up an issue and educate the providers regarding that so the most recent report they were talking about cardiac diseases and the rise of cardiac diseases as causes of maternal death and so they highlighted breathlessness as a red flag chest pain as a red flag because it can indicate you know aortic dissection which can easily be missed similarly they even talked about psychiatric issues and they mentioned if a woman discontinues antenatal care abruptly that could be a red flag for mental health disorders so all these you know this is all continuing medical education that is targeted towards health providers in your region to address problems which are there in your region what are we missing what are we doing wrong and what should we fix so and then there are also these system issues that need to be addressed so in the better hospitals in the more progressive hospitals like the one i work in they they have safety protocols and mock drills for dealing with emergencies so there is a massive transfusion protocol so it's you know you will never know when a woman is going to have a severe catastrophic hemorrhage so you need to have a protocol and you need to be really experienced in what to do next how do you recognize it early and move to the algor- algorithmic you know step by step process of treating that similarly they also have what's called critical incident reporting and and you know they they take these critical incidents and 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 examine them to find where the mistake occurred and the the issue is not so much blaming a person for doing something wrong but to fix to find a systemic solution so that the error does not occur again so that's so those are the serious sides of things so you need our providers to be better educated they need continuous education we need our systems to be very very much on the ball but now moving on to the other side which is the the non life threatening issues whether it is a mother who is having problems breastfeeding or who has postpartum pain now this is where some of the appeal of your midwifery uh, providers comes in because 
you know, we've had very busy physicians who have not addressed some of these issues as well as they could. And no wonder midwives who can provide one-on-one -on -one excellent care and continuity of care, that's why they, they are seen more favorably. And I think that uh, physicians do it as well. Physicians, nurses, they provide the best care they can. But that that is something that could be improved, surely. Even because, you know, even... Uh, for, for, a, for a woman who is taking care of a, a newborn child and is having problems breastfeeding, that can be a, 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 a huge, huge problem. For sure. Yeah. Definitely the case. Well, thank you so much. That was really, I think that was a great place to end this fascinating conversation. So um, I'd really like to thank Nicole for leading this conversation with me. And KS, I'd love to thank you for joining us on this episode and lending your expertise. Uh, I'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing this episode. And before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you discounted fees for the annual meeting. It also gets you access to the SCR library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon.